Okay, well, if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Luke chapter 1 this morning. Uh, While you're finding it, I want to just try and set up what we're going to be talking about. A few weeks back, in fact, probably more like a a month ago now, uh, we first looked at the story of Zachariah. And when we looked at it, I promised you that we'd return to it to uh, just create the uh, kind of final chapter of it so you understood where it all headed. Um, Then I was unexpectedly off for a period of time. Uh, Johnny has raced on into Luke chapter 2. I'm going to return now into Luke 1 and kind of fill in the gaps uh, from uh, where I last preached. Uh, If you remember, if you've got a fine memory, uh, Zachariah was a priest. He was a man of God. And yet, despite being a man of God, despite faithfully serving God, despite being committed to him and honoring him 100% with his life, sadly, he and his wife were unable to have children. And although they'd prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed over many years, it never happened for them. And then finally, when they're elderly, Angel Gabriel pitches up and says to Zachariah, congratulations, you're now going to have a son. Not only are you going to have a son, he's going to be one of the greatest men ever born. He's going to be the precursor of the coming Messiah. He's going to do all these phenomenal things, but you're not going to see a whole lot of it because you're very old and you're going to die soon. But it's going to be great. And Zachariah kind of struggles to believe it. In fact, he was very vocal about his doubts, so vocal about his doubts that God uh, 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 rebukes him. He closes uh, his ears, uh, prevents Zachariah speaking for pretty much the entire time that his wife Elizabeth is pregnant. It's like he's got to spend the best part of nine months wrestling with the frustration of the situation and I guess all of those feelings of shame that come from being disciplined by God in some way very publicly. And then eventually, after all of these months of being locked in on himself, unable to communicate, finally God opens Zachariah's mouth and I want to start off this morning by showing you what he says, because I think what Zachariah says is pretty profound. He, he, he actually says a whole lot, but there's one truth I really want us to get today. I want us to see that when things don't go according to plan, whether it's circumstances not working out, physical pain, sickness, illness, the loss of a loved one, or maybe even God confronting sin in our lives and disciplining us in some way, I want you to see that God's aim in all of this is ultimately that we would see and know Him more, because seeing and knowing Him more is always going to result in us experiencing more joy. Now, it's going to take us a little while to get there. And uh, I apologize for this, but we're going to flip around a number of passages, what passages, way more than we normally would. But I just want to show you how consistent this message is through the Bible. So I'm going to look at a whole bunch of different examples. I'm going to point out some stuff as we go. And then at the very end, I'll wrap it all up, it all up and try and show you how it all fits together. We'll start off by looking at what Zachariah says. We're going to pick it up in verse 67. Then 
his father, John's father, Zachariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and gave this prophecy. Remember, he's been unable to speak for months and months. These are almost the first words he says. Verse 68, praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and redeemed his people. He has sent us a mighty saviour from the royal line of his servant David, just as he promised through his holy prophets long ago. Now we'll be saved from our enemies and from all who hate us. He has been merciful to our ancestors by remembering his sacred covenant, the covenant he swore with an oath to our ancestor Abraham. We've been rescued from our enemies so we can serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness for as long as we live. And you, John, my little son, will be called the prophet of the Most High because you'll prepare the way for the Lord. You will tell his people how to find salvation through forgiveness of their sins. Because of God's tender mercy, the morning light from heaven is about to break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide us to the path of peace. Now, what we could do right now is trace almost every line of this prophecy and show how it fits in with the Old Testament prophecies about the one who would come after, uh, before Jesus. But through it all, Zachariah's basic message here is that despite things working out very differently than he could ever have imagined, God remains good, he's merciful, he's right, and all that he says is true, is true, that God saves he delivers those who find themselves in dark places. He extends hope to those who need hope. He extends mercy. He gives life to those who seek it. Now again, please, don't forget the backdrop to these words. Zachariah, as a young man, thinks he's going to have many sons. Despite his ongoing faithfulness to God, he goes decades and decades and decades and decades without children. He finally gets a son, that he's not going to see grow up. And in the process, he gets absolutely rebuked by God who seals his mouth. Things really don't work out as Zachariah would have liked. And yet, how does all of this end? All this difficulty, all this suffering, all this frustration, how does it end? It ends in rejoicing. I want us to look at something similar. Flick over to, to Samuel. We're going to be in chapter 12 for a, a, a few moments, but I'll tell you what happens in chapter 11, just to set the context. King David was in a war, but he decided, for whatever reason, not to go and fight. It's like his military campaigns have been so incredibly successful that no longer did he need to personally engage in warfare. So while all the other soldiers were letting off steam on the battlefield, David stayed behind and relaxed. Problem was, there wasn't really a whole lot for him to do of an evening, apart from lounge around in bed or walk around the roof of the palace. Devoid of focus, starved of action, unused testosterone pumping around his body. David spies a beautiful woman bathing. 
and he doesn't hide his eyes. He doesn't avert his gaze. He doesn't run from the temptation. He just kind of stands there and watches this woman bathing. After a while, he calls one of his servants over and asks, well, who's that? And the servant tries to bail him out because the servant kind of anticipates where it's all heading. The servant says, oh, that, that, that is Uriah's wife. Uriah, remember, one of your soldiers. Uriah, who's not with his wife right now because he's fighting your battle, risking his life for your kingdom. That is his wife. But David, blind with lust, says, bring her to me. And he sleeps with her and Bathsheba gets pregnant. And so, now David's in a whole lot of trouble. David's in a lot of trouble because Uriah is miles away from his wife. Uriah's going to know for sure he's not the father of the child. So David picks up a piece of paper, writes the commanding general of the army to move Uriah to the front lines, which is basically a death sentence. General opens the letter, reads it, summons Uriah, reassigns him, and sure enough, in the very next skirmish, Uriah is killed. Phew, David made it. He marries Bathsheba, which wouldn't have been weird or strange in that culture. The maths added up well enough that it was going to be close, but it was probably going to be all right. No one would suspect what had happened. David had got away with it. Now, if he could just kind of suppress his conscience, if he could just get his conscience to shut up, he'd be able to live at peace except the fact that God saw it all. I'm going to pick it up in chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan, a prophet, to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, you must not think that is strange. If you have a pet cat, dog, hamster, rabbit, gerbil, rat, whatever, this isn't strange. It's not right, but it's not strange. Now, verse 4. A traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to visit him. David burnt with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He was paid for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Verse 7, then Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the man. You, you have no pity. You stole the lamb. You killed it. You're the man. Now, you need to know, this isn't taking place in some quiet back room. This is taking place in the throne room of David where the court would have been present. Here comes this powerful prophet, Nathan. Everyone is wanting to know what he has to say to the nation. He walks in. He tells this story. 
And David's most horrific sin gets exposed right there in that moment in front of everyone. And this leads to an unbelievably dark period of time in King David's life. Let me show you something. Flip over to Psalm 51. I promise I'm going to pull all of this together. Zechariah, David, just to warn you, we're also going to look at Paul, we're going to look at the woman at the well, we're going to look at the rich young ruler, then I'm going to pull it all together and finally you will understand why we're looking at all of these stories. If you look at Psalm 51, but before it starts, there's an inscription that says this, for the director of music, a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So, right there, in the middle of his world, completely unraveling, at a level that none of us will probably ever know, David starts to write. That's what he says. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. It comes verse 6. Verse 6 is profound. David says, Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. He's saying here that way more than God is interested in dealing with his affair. God is wanting to deal with the places in David's heart that made him capable of having that affair to begin with. Now this is profound because I think the majority of people think God is simply wanting to alter their outward behavior. That's wrong. He wants to transform our hearts so that behavior flows out of a new heart. It isn't all about external behavior, it's about what's going on inside. That's what David just said here. I've done something very wicked. I've done something absolutely grotesque. But what God is wanting to deal with is the parts of my heart that would allow me to do such a thing. Verse 7, cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let let the bones you have crushed rejoice. You get that? God even crushes bones that we might rejoice. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. So just to recap. God shows up for Zechariah and it's like God presses him at his most raw point, his childlessness then his lack of faith and through the pain Zechariah ends up 
rejoicing in God. And now God reveals and presses on the thing that David wants to avoid and hide more than anything else in the whole world, his, his deepest, darkest secret. And when God exposes David, does David run from God or towards him? The answer is easy. He runs towards him. Let's look at a few more examples. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. The Apostle Paul operated in, in a power that most of us don't know and are never, ever going to know. So look at what God does. I'm telling you, this is going to mess with some of your heads. Some of you are going to find this really hard to grasp. Verse 7. Paul speaking. He says, to keep me from becoming conceited or proud because of these surpassingly great revelations that God was giving him, that, that there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Here's what just happened. God says, I'm going to put a thorn in your flesh. I'm going to cause you very real physical pain, and it's actually going to trouble you the rest of your life. And I guess, as we would if we were Paul, Paul pleads with God. He pleads with God three times, please take this away. Please take this away. Please take this away. And what's God's ultimate response? No. This messenger from Satan stays. Pray fast, all you want. This torment is going nowhere. It is from me. Now, here's what's so profound. This is going to get us to the spiritual truth I want us to grasp. Look at Paul's response. His response is unreal. He says, therefore, as a result of this, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. It's like Paul's joy goes way beyond what most of us could ever begin to comprehend. Most of us feel joy due to our circumstances. I'm happy and filled with joy because my marriage is good, and we've got money in the bank, and I've just booked a great holiday, and I've got... Joy for us tends to be built around our circumstances at any given point in time. Paul just says, I'm all right when everything is dark. I'm all right when everything is absolutely horrible in my life. I'm all right when there are all these other calamities going on where everything's gone bad. I don't think many of us even want this level of joy. Paul's spending the night, another occasion, in the open sea, the the, the waves crashing in on top of him, fearing for his life. He's going, oh, it's nothing. He's getting 
pelted with rocks to the point where people think he's dead. They leave him for dead. Wiping the blood off his face going, it's nothing. It's just a flesh wound. But although this seems very difficult, very harsh, seems like a reality most of us wouldn't want, look what it produces. Paul is definitely more free than you are. He's definitely more free than I am. Definitely walking in a depth most of us don't know right now. Because his circumstances don't dictate his joy. Joy is just there. That's profound. A couple more examples. Then I promise. I'll try and pull the whole thing together. Let's go to John 4. I'm going to pick it up in verse 7. A Samaritan woman came to draw water. Now, very quickly, let me just backtrack. This takes place, we're told in the previous verse, around the sixth hour. You need to know, women don't draw water in the first century in the sixth hour. It's it's right there in the heat of the day. They go first thing in the morning when it's a whole lot cooler. Now, the reason this woman goes when nobody else is there is she has a bad reputation. According to the law, she could have been spat on, could have had her hair pulled, could have been pelted with rocks. This is a woman that's got some major issues. Jesus says to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food, just just the two of them by the well. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is saying, the water I'm talking about here cleans the soul. The the water I'm talking about satisfies forever. The, The water I'm talking about makes you whole. Look at her response. She wants this water. She's thirsty for it. Look at verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and won't have to keep coming here to draw water. She's going, if this is true, if this is true, and I can be healed and made whole, and I can be washed clean, and I never have to be thirsty again, then please give me this water. Basically, Jesus has just thrown out the gospel to her. And she's going, I want it. How do I get whole? How do I find healing? How how do I get right before God? How does all of this happen? What must I do to be saved? What's Jesus here? I mean, it completely flips the situation. He told her, verse 16, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, 
you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Now, I would have probably played that quite differently. I probably would have gone, okay, just bow your head, let's pray. Repeat after me, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, I invite you into my life, I invite you into my life. I would have probably played it out like that. Let's go back to where we started. God presses Zachariah at the raw nerve, at that one place in his life he wants to avoid, at the one place he's frustrated, at the one place he has issues with God, God presses him there. The end result? Joy. God effectively rips the scab off David's life and all that's dirty and disgusting goes public. God presses him there. The end result? Joy. Fullness. Depth. God comes to Paul in his strength and wounds him, wounds him for his own good because Again, the end result is depth, salvation, rejoicing. He he comes to this woman and says, there's a kind of water where you will never thirst again. She says, how do I get there? How do I get it? How, How do I get this full life? How do I find salvation? And once again, Jesus presses at the deepest point of her shame. that The one area she doesn't want to address, the one area that has caused her the most grief. And here's what happens. She leaves there completely transformed. She, she, she runs into the town. Remember, th- this is a lady that lays low because she can be killed for her past sins. She, she, she runs into the town and just starts telling everybody about this man that she just met who has transformed her life. Here's a woman that's hiding, avoiding people at all costs because of her shame, who's now running through the town going, guess what? It's a pretty big transformation. Let's look really quickly at verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. How did it happen? Through a woman of ill repute, whose life was transformed because Jesus, with his sovereign scalpel, cut as deep as he could. It ends, once again, in transformation, in joy, in life, in salvation. Let's look at one more. Let's go to Matthew 19. We're going to pick it up in verse 16. Now, man came up to Jesus And asked, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good, Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If if you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Which ones? The man inquired. I love this guy. You want eternal life, keep the commands. All of them? 
He's like, surely there are certain ones that are more important and other ones that really I don't have to follow. So Jesus plays the game and says to him, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honour your father and mother and love your neighbour as yourself. All of those I've kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? You see what just happened there? All the rules... Everything he's supposed to follow, everything externally that he's supposed to look like, he looks like. He, he's obeyed the commands, he, he's done what he's supposed to do, and yet he's following Jesus around going, something is still missing, something is still wrong with my life. Could it be that merely observing religious rituals, coming along to meetings on Sundays, trying to be holy might not be enough to bring you anywhere close to salvation. certainly seems so. Verse 21, Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, then you'll have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. Jesus never asked that of anyone else. Fishermen, Pharisees, never asked that of anyone else. But this guy, this guy says, how do I follow you? How do I have eternal life? All right, sell all you have give it all away to the poor, then you can come and follow me. Now, this man's response is going to be wildly different from everyone else's response that we've read about so far. Verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Now, the similarity is the sorrow. Remember, Zachariah had sorrow. David had sorrow. Paul had some sorrow in his life. The woman at the well definitely had sorrow. So the sorrow isn't the difference. The difference is this man's sorrow led him away from God rather than towards God. So this kind of catastrophic thing occurs. Things don't go according to plan. And men and women humble themselves before God as God presses on that raw nerve. They press into him And as a result of pressing into him, they, even in their despair, even in the difficulty, even in the midst of things not going according to plan, they find joy, they find depth, they discover salvation. This man gets that nerve pressed, and instead of submitting to it, immediately goes, I'll find another way. He leaves Jesus, and we never hear from him again. The difference between this man and everyone else that we have looked at, is that with everyone else there's a conversion that takes place, a transformed life, a fullness of life, and there's rejoicing. Last we hear from this young man is he is filled with sorrow as he walks away. So here's the spiritual truth. It's going to be hard to get, I don't want any of us to miss this. Maybe, just maybe, when things don't go according to plan in our lives, maybe when we get exposed in our sin, or when God disciplines us, or when He confronts us in our ignorance, or He wounds us in our strength, maybe when business starts to fail, when marriage gets difficult, when we get sick, when catastrophe strikes, when sorrow enters our life, when money runs out, 
what if these things aren't happening because God's deserted us? What if they're happening because God loves us too much to save us from them? What if in them God is in fact displaying His deepest mercy to us? Because God could have left Zachariah alone in his doubts, growing more and more bitter in his old age. God didn't have to send Nathan. God could have let David live out the rest of his life under the increasing weight of his shame. God doesn't have to humble Paul. He could let Paul get all arrogant and then cast him aside for his pride. He doesn't have to pour love out on this woman who's been so overtly promiscuous that everyone in the town just makes a joke out of her whenever she shows her face. But in each one of these examples, for the men and the women that humble themselves before God, believe that He is who He says He is, and press into Him, the end result is always joy, deep joy. And in the one case where a man says, well, forget that route. I'm not confessing my sin. I'm not letting go of my anger or my bitterness or my hurt or my pain. I don't want to learn anything through this. I want to stay right where I am right now. In that moment, sorrow follows and we, we never get the picture of rejoicing, we never get the picture of transformation, we never get the picture of freedom that this guy's so hungry for, despite all of his religious efforts. Could it be that God hasn't deserted you? Could it be that things aren't going according to plan in your life right now because He loves you? Could it be that The circumstances you're facing right now are, in fact, an expression of God's mercy to you. Could it be that there is way more joy for you to experience in 2013 than you have ever experienced before? If you'll simply humble yourself before God and press into Him. I just want you to know, past 12 months, I've kind of been forced to live this message. It's probably been one of the toughest years of my life with uh, ill health, time off work, surgery. Just before Christmas, my dad unexpectedly suddenly dying. It's been probably the, the toughest year of my life. I can also honestly say, I've known God with me like never before and I wouldn't change a thing and I want this for you as well.